have you watched any Attack on Titan yet? No, I haven't. I still haven't watched Attack on Titan. I am, though. I'm totally encouraging of your your transition into Anime Jordan. You were just mentioning. You've been talking about yeah, manga I'm Anime now. Jordan now. Yeah, I, I know what that is. Yeah, <laughs> I'm now aware. That's okay. Uh, I finished season one of Attack on Titan, and it was fucking awesome. And I can't wait to to keep going. I'm I'm all in. I'm I'm Anime Jordan now. Good. That's great. I still you watch it. I w- I will. I will do it. You've been really pushing me hard on this. I think you'll like it. Yeah, I probably will. I think so. When was the last time you saw Akira? If you're going to become I've an anime guy, it. you're going you're going to have to revisit that at some point or visit it for the first time. I should watch it. Yeah, I will. That's a you seminal. Like, that's, that's the one a you seminal mentioned work. before that you really like. Yeah, that's. I mean, that's like the the anime. Like that's the sort of the starting point for a, a lot of uh, a lot of that. I think not. It's like it's the first one or anything like that. But in terms of like the crossover with the Western audiences, I think was one of the first to really make that leap. And again, like I like I mentioned the last time we talked about it, so influential, so influential on so many big like sci-fi properties that we think of now, the Matrix and uh, a lot of that, a lot of that stuff. Really, yeah, highly recommend that. If you're going to be an anime guy, you got to you got to go back to the source. So, I would recommend that you check okay. out that one. I will I'll cool. watch it. You have my word. We should make an anime intro for this show. That would be cool. Imagine that if we had a whole like theme song with like anime yeah. versions of us we're like running. doing cool stuff we're like yeah, running we're jumping at each other like throwing a punch <laughs> and then it's like it like freezes and then there's like a 360 around us ken is in the middle That'd of it cool. and both the fists converge on ken and just like demolish yeah. him with this big explosion <laughs> <laughs> if you, you are an animator and yes. you, you listen to this show please reach out about animating us punching ken in the face yeah <laughs> This is what the this is what the audience of this show needs to needs to see next. I think this is where we need to take things. That'd be, that would be hilarious. Yeah, that'd be very good. Uh, well, let's get into our conversation. But before, want to remind people we unlocked our episode with Congressman Ro Khanna from earlier this week. It was a really good conversation. He was pretty open about it, everything we wanted to talk about, which we appreciated. We talked about his rail safety bill and the government response to the train derailment in East Palestine, got into Silicon Valley Bank's uh, collapse and their fight against regulation, uh, and then ultimately wanting the government to step in. His fundraiser with David Sachs, who was you know one of the tech guys we talked about in our episode with Ed Zitron, who was you know, demanding and clamoring for days about how the government needed to protect all depositors at Silicon Valley Bank. And we also talked a little bit about something we go into with with Spencer, and it's the role of diplomacy uh, in the war between Ukraine and Russia. Really good conversation with Congressman Ro Khanna. That's now unlocked. Uh, but if you do want to subscribe, you can at the insurgents.substack.com. Five bucks a month, you get an extra episode every week. You help keep the show going and you become a beloved paid intern. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I really enjoyed the conversation with, uh, with Ro Khanna. Like I was saying, like on the episode, I'm a little bit cynical about, um, or I've definitely grown a little bit cynical about many of these kind of progressive Congress people or, you know, progressive MPs here in Canada, this whole role, uh, idea of, 
working within that system to, to uh, enact progressive policy is I think I've, I've become a lot less confident in the ability of that process to work over the years that I've been paying attention to this stuff. But I did enjoy talking to him. I mean, a bunch of people kind of seemed to get mad at us right away and be like, oh, he's a fraud for this reason and brought up the thing about sex. But, you know, we did ask him about this stuff. Um, we pushed back, yeah. we tried to push back on a couple of things where we could, you know, I wasn't really in the mood to start like screaming at a U.S. congressman who's, uh, who was talking to <laughs> us, which is, I think what probably maybe some people would have liked for us to do, but we did ask him about some of these contradictions, fundraising with Sachs and, you know, the whole peace process in Ukraine. And, you know, he, he answered the questions and, you know, people can decide for themselves whether the answers are satisfactory or not. But uh, I did enjoy the conversation. I, I was happy that he took the time to talk to us, at least. And like Jordan mentioned as well, we've got Spencer Ackerman joining us today. You kind of said you kind of alluded to it, but you didn't do the full introduction. Spencer Ackerman no, did, is joining us. <laughs> Spencer Ackerman <laughs> is joining us in just a few minutes. It was uh, over the weekend the 20th anniversary of the invasion of Iraq. I think for a lot of people that kind of grew up in this generation, it was a very formative and radicalizing moment and definitely worth, especially given, you know, what's going on geopolitically currently worth taking a look back at uh, how that war started and the kind of climate uh, in media and politics leading up to the war. And, you know, the t- talking about how a lot of the people that were involved in this, what amounts to this really horrific crime uh, not only kind of walked away from that without any consequences, but were kind of rehabilitated and rewarded for it, which again, in and of itself is a, is an extremely radicalizing thing to kind of witness play out. So uh, really good discussion with Spencer Ackerman as well. Yeah. Let's, let's, let's get into it. I, I always love talking to him, listening to what he has to say. And there were times throughout this interview where I was just just listening as I would any other show because yeah. everything he says is so uh, insightful. It was, it was wonderful. Yeah, it was great stuff. So let's bring on Spencer Ackerman. He is going to be joining the Insurgents podcast right after this. off mic i've already explained to you the delicate situation here in canada right now where our intelligence agencies are they're trying to coup my boy justin trudeau you all everyone knows everyone that listens to this program knows how much i love justin trudeau and the liberal party you look into his eyes and, and he's, he's you know the dreaminess yeah exactly that's canada. what's not to like precisely <laughs> and now CSIS, the canadian intelligence agency is undergoing this kind of like media campaign, coordinated media campaign to to suggest that Trudeau and the Liberal Party are are soft on China and they're ba- they're basically CPC spies. Like let's call it what it is. CCP, you mean? And um, there isn't there some just d- dis- like confusion about the acronym. I thought it was the CPC. You mean the Chinese the Communist Party? Is there a different one? I thought there's like there's like the pejorative one, the CCP. That's what all the people like the people say about it. But I believe the correct the correct uh, acronym is the CPC. Oh, I didn't know that. Okay, I can look into that. I don't I know. Am I saying am I saying slurs on accident? I don't think no, it counts it's as a both. slur. The official acronym, the official acronym is CPC, but other people call it the CCP. Anyway, like. Uh, 
exactly. I like if Trudeau was a was a Chinese spy, I would think that would be pretty cool, probably. But unfortunately, I don't think that's the case. So that would be an incredible it's, turn it, of events. It's, if if, if this would, if this yeah, if this, thing, if this heel turn. narrative turns out as advertised, yeah, <laughs> that was that was not that, that was not something turn. we saw coming. I would have no choice but to stand, frankly. <laughs> If that was the case, <laughs> somehow I don't think so. Well, I'm sorry you're going through that, but the I'm that sorry. is kind of alarming. The the hysteria that you've described, where they're just singling out a Chinese member of, uh, or a Chinese politician in Canada, yeah, is is ridiculous. And we're it's seeing very, that kind of stuff happen here in the states. We they don't have any like of the singling out like you're talking about. But today there was the hearing on TikTok in Congress. Where, you know, and this has been an ongoing issue in D.C. for for months now where they've talked about, you know, the Chinese government spying on people through TikTok. And the questions today at the hearing were really ludicrous. It showed how little these legislators actually understand about the technological (laughs) capabilities. One asked if if TikTok can connect to your home devices. It's like, and CEO felt bad for him. He just didn't know what what to say without insulting the, the... the rep yeah he was basically like i think the answer to the question is no but we, we just do what every other social Service, media company does tiktok does. connect to wi-fi it's like yeah it does that's how you <laughs> that's how you go on the every, internet when you're at home you know yeah so this is what uh surveillance capitalism's protectionist term that we want to make sure that right. you know bite dance is ultimately owned and all of the data provided to tiktok is ultimately provided to a company that can participate in the NSA's prison program instead of giving it to the Chinese <laughs> intelligence agencies, they'll give it to the American intelligence agencies. The, yeah. the, the, de- uh, this, right, this, the privacy concern isn't an actual privacy concern. It's a national, it's a nationalism concern. Uh, totally. Yeah. I mean, if that was, if that was really what they were worried about, they would have taken issue with Facebook or Google or Microsoft or uh, any of these other you. You know any of any of these other companies or platforms that were collecting and harvesting all this data, but they, they don't have an issue with it. They wanted it and they wanted to use it and collect it. It was a catch-all program. It's, it's ridiculous that they're just singling one company out when they're all doing it. Well, and even like we've made fun of the Twitter files uh, bullshit, but one of the actually interesting things about the Twitter files that's been revealed is the extent to which like the intelligence agencies have their have are in communication with these uh, social media companies like Twitter and how much the US government is like leaning on them whenever they need them to uh, release their data um so it's yeah, amazing like given yeah. that kind of climate given that kind of climate that there's if you're singling out TikTok because of data collection or any of these things while ignoring all that i mean that's just being racist like that's just fundamentally what it's about I would I would just say that's great power competition in practice. That the issue is not that the data collection and the privacy invasions um, occur, because that's now central to twenty first century America to twenty first century capitalism. Period. Um, it's who gets to exploit that data, who doesn't get access to that data to exploit it. Um, so it looks more like a protectionism uh, issue than it does, uh, you know, first principle issue. Yeah, so overall, just a troubling climate, I guess, right now when it comes to this kind of stuff that I can imagine is only going to get worse. Yeah, it really just feels like, you know, the the starting gun sounding for the Cold War with China. And if the Cold War with the Soviet Union is any indication, and for that matter, the 
very weird period that starts in 2003 about Iraq that we're going to discuss. Um, this is going to worm its way into ever more, um, you know, strange, unexpected, seemingly um, outside of politics areas of, of our lives for however long, um, quote unquote, great power competition lasts. I, I, that is a good segue. I tried. Uh, I'm trying. <laughs> I, I like it because, I mean, what we're going to see, and this is something that we warned about and other people warned about when it, we we saw it in the first year of COVID. We saw all these, you know, anti-Asian attacks on people in the United States. And we're still seeing them today because people associate COVID with China, which I, I've never understood that theory. Not that people who are motivated by hate or racism or spite are rational actors. But this idea that China released this d disease maliciously that will forever and globally be associated with their country never made any sense. But on the one hand, it's this, it's this terrible bioweapon. On the other hand, it's not even cause for concern. You shouldn't even worry yeah. about it, and you should continue living your lives. It's, it's both at the same time, but ultimately, random people on the sidewalk in New York or San Francisco or whatever who happen to be Chinese or really any yeah, from any they're country they're not drawing distinctions here. No, totally not. And we, they're they're subject to physical attacks or harassment. At I mean, the parallel here with with the post nine eleven era is the you know wave of racism and xenophobia that we saw to anybody who was broadly Middle Eastern. And I remember I was telling a friend as we were talking about uh, the post nine eleven era on the twentieth anniversary the other night. I remember a family friend who was Indian. Uh, and he was just a doctor and his just name was in the phone book uh, in the company section for, for his doctor's office. He was getting harassing phone calls like a week or two after 9-11. I mean, he's obviously had nothing to do with it, but he's not even from the country that you're purportedly mad at. Like it's, they, these people, just any general similarities or part of the religious tradition that you're mad totally, at. Yeah, it's just ridiculous. So, um, Spencer, you wrote a fantastic book that we had you want to talk about before. I've talked about it a lot because I, I love it. It's one of my favorite books of the past few years. Reign of Terror, how the 9-11 era destabilized America and produced Trump, you know, critically acclaimed book. For someone who's thought about this for years and wrote about it, could you bring us back to that that moment in time? We were post nine eleven, and how American people—not people in power only—but how American people in general responded to quote these general foreign adversaries, and you know people who didn't look like the traditional American, a, a white, you know. A white professional American. Yeah. So there are a couple la layers here that I want to go through. Um, the period between 9-11 and the March 2003 invasion of Iraq, you could really go probably throughout 2003 for this. When it comes to either foreign policy or just like the domestic social bonds, it just resembles a mass psychotic episode. And that episode is like the result of deliberate cultivation. So when we are talking about, about this response, on the one hand, yes, you really did see widespread social buy-in for this rabid assertion of American militarism, this revival 
um, of American nativism. You'll recall that right after 9-11, there's this absolute push um, to talk about how it's, you know, lacks border controls and, and um, immigration that's going to ultimately do away with our open society. Um, basically, you got from serious people an argument that we had to destroy the open society in order to save it, that kind of thing. But on the other hand, after 9-11, there is such a narrow band of acceptable opinion stemming from the way the people in, in, um, in the Bush administration talk about the attacks and the way people in Congress and people in the media talk about um, the attacks um, that really funnel uh, the socially acceptable responses to this in a really narrow and um, militaristic and hyper jingoistic um, sort of empty patriotism um, that really operates as power worship and um, a sense of justification that because America has been hurt, uh, the responses that it ought to employ um, have to be uh, the most um, militarized and security focused ones available, that it's time for America. This is the subtext. This is rarely, you know, you, you see this all throughout um, culture in this era, um, but not necessarily the explicit um, words of politicians, that it's time for revenge, that, you know, you guys all remember, maybe some of your, you know, the, the, the youths among us, you know, won't, but like, go check out a Toby Keith song called Courtesy of the Red, White and Blue. Um, this is, this is like one of the, the, you know, if you were to put together a, you know, 9-11 era playlist, this is, this is really like so high up there. And, you know, this is, we're, we're sort of, you know, more than a year after 9-11 when this comes out and it's time at this point to kind of pivot the war on terror in the Bush administration's, um, machinations away from, um, Afghanistan, um, and toward Iraq. And so Toby writes this song that's, you know, just about how, you know, we'll put a boot in your ass. It's the American way. Um, and the target isn't really important. Um, and that's where you start seeing, you know, manifestations of, um, you know, people understandably, given the cultural cues they're shown, given license to blame their neighbors for 9-11 instead of asking what American foreign policy has been and done over the course of decades in the Middle East and South Asia that contributes uh, to this desire for revenge upon America, that contributes, that, that contributes to um, historical processes that like we shorthand with the term blowback. That's not an acceptable thing to think of definitely it remains you know it, there's an element of controversy with that even today um but in the uh year and a half speed run between 9-11 and the invasion of iraq that was considered treasonous um you would get through you know you wouldn't be near the airwaves if you said something like that the, the most famous you know example is susan sontag right after 9-11 um writing about um, how the attack um, is being um, spoken about by politicians in order to have people not connected to American foreign policy and patterns of 
uh, very violent, expropriative and extractive history of the United States in the Middle East. Um, and that compounds and accelerates to such a degree that shortly before the invasion of Iraq, the biggest, today's a country music heavy episode, it seems, uh, the biggest <laughs> country music band at the time is this band, the Dixie Chicks, um, who yeah. aren't really known as a political band. Um, they're just an enormously popular, um, not just in America, but as a cultural export. And shortly, I believe shortly before, possibly shortly after the invasion, um, one of the Dixie Chicks talks about how, uh, you know, with the invasion of Iraq on everyone's mind, I don't even think she she said those words, um, but that they were ashamed to be from Texas, like George W. Bush. That's a pretty innocuous statement. I think, you know, anyone who's, you know, criticized a president ever for, you know, whatever president and from whatever perspective you're criticizing the president for has used way, way harsher language than that, way more, you know, directly um, heated language than that. And for this, you can really only say it. The Dixie Chicks are canceled. Their career is over after this. Yeah. Uh, people held bonfires. They had steamrollers roll over their CDs because music was still physical then. And it was... A, and it, it, was a, it was both a microcosm and a kind of supreme example of um, what the culture was at that time, whereby... Um, the most violent responses to the most understated of criticisms of dissents to the reigning consensus that America was this innocent victim that now had a renewed understanding of why it has to go forth with its military in, in the world and sort out um, other people's politics for them, um, that America basically is a pin and the world is a grenade. And that Inevitably, once you send that message in an environment of extreme vengeance and, a, and really a, a bloodlust for that, they're going to take it out as they did on their neighbors because they're not necessarily going to go join the military. They're definitely not going to go out in the world and try and do something for America and for the world um, in solidarity. What they are going to do is find the nearest person who kind of in their minds sort of looks like the person that the TV is telling them to be mad at. And they're going to, they're going to do something um, violent to that person. And that happened in the United States and it's still happening in the United States. Yeah. I mean, it's amazing how you describe the, the long legacy of uh, violence and destabilization and imperialism that led directly to 9-11 and then just led to the invasion of Iraq. And, the way not only was that kind of completely verboten to be to reference it in any way, um, Bill Maher famously was someone else that was canceled during that period. I'm not a big Maher guy to this day, but like he he also lost his job for some innocuous statements that he made around that time. Yeah, and, all he said yeah, was that only, the terrorists weren't cowards. Yeah, that they yeah. were not physically cowardly. That was it. Yeah, whatever else you think yeah. about Maher and his evolution, his shitty comedy, certainly today. Um, that was an example of how, like, from the podium of the White House, that was that was Ari Fleischer, Bush's spokesperson, who told people, I think these are, this isn't quite the exact quote, but it's something like that, that Americans have to watch what they say in times like these. 
Yeah, it was very, it was, it was very dark. And that's the thing you mentioned, like people that are younger than weren't around at that time, I think underestimate or, or don't really don't understand the extent to which this climate was completely, um, how oppressive it was, um, in, in terms of like that kind of discourse. And yeah, like you mentioned, not only was it not possible to reference America's history or America's long legacy of uh, violence, um, and the role it played in, in leading up to those events, but the way that all that was not only kind of hidden away, but distilled down to they hate us for our freedoms. And now that was, that was the explanation basically that was given to people from the president of the United States. And it was enough. It was enough for a lot of people. A lot of people bought that. And that was the only kind of acceptable viewpoint that was allowed during that time. And if you bring up that, you know, Al Qaeda tells us directly why they attack America. It's because of America's uh, history, particularly in Saudi Arabia, uh, the violence that uh, it inflicts through sanctions upon Iraq and upon the Palestinians for its support for Israel. Then pe people might ask, well, should we really be doing that stuff? Not because they have, they think Al Qaeda is actually making a good point, but because they don't want to be harming the rest of the world. So people who run oil companies uh, can live in extravagant sybaritic wealth. Um, the reason why the Bush administration and, you know, quickly following cues, pretty much the rest of the political and media class, you know, goes that way in a moment of supreme trauma, it has the effect of allowing the recrudescence of all of that history um, to take shape in the invasion of Iraq, that if you were supposed to say, well, actually, we got attacked because people got pissed off at how the United States is, from their perspective, occupying an oil-rich Muslim country, meaning at that point, Saudi Arabia, they probably won't say, well, you know, if we just do that the next country over, that's probably not going to go over very well either. Um, and making those kinds of questions, that line of, of thinking outside of the realm of public respectability served that purpose. And that is kind of the purpose that it always serves when we're talking about a um, misleading narrative that has to do with life or death aspects of U.S. foreign policy. The point is to just do more of the same, if not expanding. We should also be clear that this push to invade and occupy Iraq preceded Bush and preceded 9-11. There was a clip that went around again uh, this week, and I, I know you saw it, Spencer, of a town hall from 1998. It was in Columbus, Ohio. Madeleine Albright was there answering questions, and someone asked, hey, why should we bomb Iraq uh, under the guise of you know defending human rights? When our allies and countries that we arm and sell weapons to are doing the same, if not worse, things that Saddam Hussein purportedly is doing. And there was a back and forth for a while. She dodged the questions. You know, people were booing her. And eventually, in response to him specifically articulating numerous countries that do heinous things, commit human rights atrocities, that the United States armed then and arms today— she said, I'm really surprised that people feel that it is necessary to defend the rights of Saddam Hussein when we ought to be making sure that he does not use weapons of mass destruction. So that lie wasn't necessarily materialized or invented by the Bush administration that preceded them. 
but they certainly continued it. And ultimately we saw that was totally bogus. And I don't think that American, you know, secretaries of defense and secretaries of state um, have held anything like that kind of town hall. I think there's a Ohio state university. Um, yeah. It's, it's a, it's a, a raucous event where like you actually saw people directly challenge um, some of the most cosseted policymakers there are, which is um, U.S. foreign policy, which tends to be, you know, extremely um, elite and insular and, you know, views the American public, whether on the left or the right, um, with suspicion, because it might potentially be outside um, that very narrow band of consensus. Um, shout to, uh, I believe his name is John Savage, um, who asked that question. Um, uh, and after that, that just, you, you, you wouldn't see that happen again. I think ever it's that such a thing is just unimaginable, um, after, after nine 11. Um, but to your point, Jordan, um, ever since the Gulf war ended in 1991, a bipartisan foreign policy consensus considered Saddam Hussein to be unfinished business. Um, the policy of the Clinton administration um, was something known as dual containment, um, containing both Iraq and Iran um, at the same time. Um, and there was tremendous unease, mostly but not exclusively on the right, about the viability of this. Um, in particular, um, there was an almost constant stream of stories about how Saddam already had weapons of mass destruction, that a breakout period for a nuclear weapon um, was, was potentially imminent. A lot of what you would hear um, in the, in the run-up to the war. Um, and all of this had the effect of making um, the public kind of conditioned to believe that a Gulf War sequel was kind of inevitable to state it um, somewhat crudely. Um, but it's that moment that Albright, as you bring up, immediately pivots to the idea that critics of U.S. foreign policy are defenders of Saddam Hussein, that really like speaks to how like the the 9-11 era is kind of really primed the moment that um, the, the planes hit the towers um, for elite public opinion to start interpreting um, domestic questions about what it does and its role in these disasters that um, so many people around the world and then people in the United States experience that they're they're ready to do things like call uh, a college student with a pointed question a defender of Saddam Hussein and that's the Secretary of State of the United States who's de who is definitely not mad she definitely did not get mad. <laughs> Yeah, and thankfully that <laughs> tactic is no longer being used and there's no current events that we could draw any kind of comparisons to with the way that that kind of uh, – the way that that works. I think like one of the most amazing things for me, like you're talking – like on the I, on the anniversary of the war, I, I took a look back at a lot of the, the news clips uh, in the lead up to it and I was really struck by – because I was, you know, 20 around this time, not to date myself um, as an old person – but, you know, not super politically aware or certainly not to the same extent that I am now. But looking back on it, I think it's really incredible just how blatant it was. The absolute like the way that this intelligence was kind of manufactured and was so flimsy. Um, 
and every single kind of safeguard that should be in the way, every single like journalist that just completely abdicated their responsibility to interrogate it at all. Um, and all these international institutions that were trying to like push back on it, the UN's weapons inspectors and even NATO that didn't want to get involved. I think it was shocking even today to look back on it at how blatant it was, how they had this goal in mind and they were in fully intent on um, arriving at that goal, no matter how you know flimsy the evidence was and how pretty much they had this this extremely compliant media establishment that 100% went along with it. I was reminded um, someone someone circulated this um, uh, I think last week um, and I had forgotten about it but um, George W. Bush had a press secretary named Scott McClellan and McClellan I want to say around like 2006 or so um, leaves the White House and, and writes a memoir and this is like his service in the Bush administration is, is, is basically like when it's at the highs that it was at around and right before the invasion of Iraq to like the dive it takes um, about two, three years um, after invasion and the occupation has become a charnel house. And the point that, um, that he writes in his memoir, one of the points that he makes in his memoir is that, you know, when he becomes press secretary, he expects this this like relentless opposition um, from the White House press corps, particularly on Iraq, particularly on you know this this dire matter of war and peace. And he writes that he's just shocked at how they didn't really need to discipline the press to get um, their lies about Iraq across. I don't just mean before the invasion; I mean all throughout the occupation. Um, the way the deceitful way the United States invaded becomes the deceitful way it tries to act literally like there wasn't an insurgency happening. Like all that was happening to go back to Madeleine Albright's line is that there are some Saddam Hussein loyalists, dead enders who don't accept the inevitability um, of the, the post Saddam American occupied Iraq. When in fact there is a nationwide uprising um, against it. Um, and McClellan just writes instead that it was like pushing on an open door that um, he expected and kind of it, it, in an amazing way, because, you know, here's someone who's selling these lies, who has just reached a kind of breaking point. And, you know, I can, I, you know, I'm not Scott McClellan's therapist or anything, but I can, you know, it's, it's, it's a wild thing to then, you know, have him see, well, why didn't any of you stop me? Why were none of you trying to stop me? Didn't you know I was lying to you? Um, and that that seems like a a kind of elegant postmodernist way. Like if you were to write, if you were like Harold Pinter and you were going to write a play about this era, like I would, I would have like McClellan be a, a leading character where he knows what he's saying is both untrue and wrong, and he's looking for someone to stop him for doing that instead of being the person who just says outright, I refuse to take part in this. We have uh, perpetrated a massive crime against the Iraqi people, against the American people, against international law, against what we're going to call years later, um, when Russia violates it, the rules-based international order. Um, there's a lot of, you know, I, I was a young reporter um, starting out at that time, and all throughout my career, um, 
a lot of colleagues of mine in various newsrooms, good people, um, would just sort of constantly lament how the public has like next to no faith in us um, and, and just be sort of constantly shocked and horrified and saddened by how little credibility uh, people were willing to invest in the press. And as someone who is, you know, kind of only worked um, in the post 9-11 landscape, all I can really say is that, uh, like, that's a rational reaction uh, to being sold a war by people you trust for information or people you are accustomed to thinking as trustworthy um, arbiters of what is and is not um, truth in the public sphere. And a lot of times, particularly in foreign policy, give me one second. A lot of times, typically in foreign policy, people talk a lot about American credibility, like it's an infinitely renewable resource. Well, we've taken a real hit to American credibility. It's going to you know, take a long time to recover from that. But it never seems to occur to people that this might simply be a finite resource, that once you stop trusting people, they're not going to necessarily allow you opportunities to win that back. And I really don't think there's been nearly enough. I mean, I don't, this isn't really a controversial thing to say, but like there hasn't been a reckoning in the American media, just as there hasn't been one in the American government for the degree to which the media packaged outright bullshit as being credible representations of a complex geopolitical situation, um, or even a simple geopolitical situation like the invasion of Iraq, which is just straightforwardly an act of aggression in violation of international law. You couldn't write, I mean, there was, you know, great work done, of course, by, you know, reporters at what used to be Knight Ritter, um, you know, Jonathan Landy, Warren Strobel, um, their editor, John Walcott, especially, but even beyond them, you know, and the questions about weapons and, you know, they're reporting on, on the, the lack of weapons of mass destruction in particular, the, the broader foreign policy press did not like have as, you know, central and clear statements that this was not a legal war. This was not, this was simply, you could not, Bush came up with terms for this to kind of mask it, that this was an active, uh, an active preemption. Uh, this was a preemptive act. It was not in fact a preventive one. And the reason why that distinction, which might seem kind of obscure matters is because what they were trying to do is get very far away from a circumstance where a lawyer would say, well, what we mean by an active preventive war is simply an act of aggression. Like every country that, that acts as an aggressor is going to claim some degree of self-defense. That's just how it works. But we have to, in fact, adjudicate what these claims are. And there is supposed to be a process by which, um, you know, these sorts of, of acts of, of international violence happen um, under charter, under uh, the UN charter. Um, none of that happened. The United States took it upon itself to act unilaterally. And the rest of the world was supposed to go along with it, which must, which, you know, most of the mechanisms of, um, you know, of, of, uh, of, of the, the so-called rules-based international order 
while they didn't approve of the action, found themselves either powerless or believing themselves to be powerless to stop it. Um, to to kind of give one example, um, there uh, before the invasion of Iraq, um, the UN under you know extreme uh, U.S. pressure. Uh, sends weapons inspectors back to Iraq. One team investigates chemical and biological weapons. That's led by a guy named Hans Blix. The other team under um, the International Atomic Energy Agency under a guy named Mohammed El-Baradai investigates the nuclear weapons case. And they are both trying to be neutral and uh, fair-minded and maintain what they believe is a necessary posture of international credibility, which means treating the American um, presentation against Iraq as if it has credence, um, and they do their jobs professionally. And in the process, certainly from Blix's perspective, a lot of you know his inability to say that these programs definitively do not exist becomes evidence um, from the Bush administration's perspective that Saddam Hussein must simply be hiding it and therefore... Uh, you know, the, the UN isn't going to resolve this issue and we have to. The International Atomic Energy Agency guy, Mohammed El-Baradai, is far more straightforward and says there is not a nuclear weapons program. And he gets attacked a lot in the weeks before the invasion happens because now he is an outright obstacle to it. But then nothing ultimately stops the invasion. That the United States simply decides it has had enough of this process. It considers um, Saddam's, uh, you know, degrees of intransigence against the UN weapons inspections to be pretextual, which is exactly how Saddam sees it, because it's all pretextual. um, And like the process of putting the weapons inspectors back in Iraq and Bush cuts it short and invades. And we saw instead of how the outward posture of the Bush administration um, coming to pass, which is that uh, the UN and its member states are an unacceptable check on American power, we saw instead how it acts functionally as both a facilitator to it and then a lack of a guardrail from it. Now, I'm wondering if you find any similarities between how they responded to these inspectors in these reports, how Americans in general responded to those and seeing them as obstacles, right? To very tepid suggestions that we should consider diplomacy and other conflicts. We saw the response to the Progressive Caucus saying, hey, maybe we should also, while we're supporting Ukraine, we they have our support 100%. Maybe we should also find some room to start a dialogue and also talk about diplomatic uh, options. They were immediately and widely criticized for even suggesting that diplomacy be one part of the United States' strategy and role in that conflict. And as you know, we've warned on the show and other people have talked about, that has real consequences for the people who are directly affected by that war just as american ignorance and aggression had very real consequences for millions of iraqis i I, i'm wondering if you could help people see 
and identify similarities in the way we responded then to how we respond to different international challenges going forward. And what would you suggest people understand that may help them better understand why we need to uh, consider diplomacy and treat it with the same weight as we do military options? Well, the first thing I would say is that the verdict is in on the Iraq war, on the Afghanistan war. Uh, you know, we could, we could go down the line to others, but like just to take Iraq, this was the 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 thing to say, somewhere between. So, I get a little emotional about this, so pardon me. Um, depending on uh, which studies you believe, which epidemiological models you're willing to credit, at least two hundred thousand and possibly upwards of a million people were killed by the Iraq war, a war fought under, whether you want to say uh, deliberate lies, whether you want to say oopsies, either way, the pretext for the wars, the rationales for the wars did not bear out. This happens in an atmosphere where criticizing a militaristic policy is considered tantamount to treason. The, the, the Progressive Caucus's statement on Ukraine kind of demonstrated, you know, as, as, as you're indicating, that, you know, this impulse is still there, particularly when uh, people come to believe that righteousness is on their side, which is extremely hard to explain to people today, but was absolutely a prevailing sentiment that the idea was uh, the Iraq war was going to be an act of liberation, that we were getting rid of a dictator and, and turning um, the Iraqi people free. Not that, you know, we would occupy Iraq uh, for the better part of a decade, leave it for three years, come back and do it to the point where we now have a residual force in Iraq, um, that uh, Iraqi state assets would be privatized and open uh, to unlimited foreign investment, that the State Department would push Iraq uh, to sign massive no-bid oil concessions to Western uh, oil companies and so on. Instead, this was an act of liberation. Um, with Ukraine, what has gotten very unfortunately lost in uh, the, I believe, you know, correct uh, moral understanding that uh, the Russian invasion is every bit uh, as uh, violent, every bit is, as evil, every bit as unjustified as the U.S. invasion of Iraq, is that that could be Ukraine's fate, that this war could go on in such a grinding and horrific way without an endpoint. And if you don't want to look at Iraq for that, look at Syria next door. And you see what a charnel house this can really become. And the idea that a force of arms without a clear diplomatic strategy and an energetic and creative one um, has, you know, a chance of success is going to be ultimately measured, you know, in this in the Ukraine case, not in our lives, but in their lives. And that is not to say 
that the United States has to dictate terms to Ukraine uh, to come to the table and accept what Vladimir Putin is willing to offer. It is to recognize that wars have to be stopped, that there is a limit to what a force of arms can achieve, and that a stalemate once entered into really can last forever. Um, You know, not forever, ever. But um, the point being is that uh, once it entrenches, it can be exceptionally difficult to dislodge. And one of the, you know, patterns in American behavior, and certainly not just American behavior, but, you know, very recent American behavior in Iraq and in Afghanistan is the idea that, you know, one more big push will do it. I mean, even when you just say it like that, um, you know, it's impossible not to think of, you know, World War One and going over the top and the idea that, you know, one more, um, you know, offensive on the plains of Flanders um, will somehow, you know, dislodge the lines on the Western Front. Or, you know, in, in Iraq, what they said was, you know, the next six months will be crucial. In Afghanistan, you know, the next fighting season um, will be determined and so forth. And no, in fact, what happens is, is under circumstances of an entrenched war, politics does not grow more reasonable. People do not grow more willing to compromise. People are not more inclined to view uh, a modus vivendi with the people um, who are killing their loved ones. It becomes far more Hobbesian and far more of an impulse um, to to fight to the bitter end. Um, In Iraq, that resulted in a social fracture and a civil war, a civil war under a foreign occupation um, that Iraq still bears the scars of today. And I'm sorry to say can be expected to bear the scars of in the future, because only Americans think of 20 years as a sh- as, as like some unfathomably long period of time. To, to, to people with a greater sense of, of history, people with, with longer um, uh, cultural memories, that's an eye blink. I think, you know, it, it's interesting in the same way that, you know, I kind of hinted at this earlier, but in the same way that I think talking about America's role in you know, creating the situation that led to 9-11 or pushing back against the invasion of Iraq got you deemed sort of a Saddam sympathizer or a, or a terrorist sympathizer or whatever. It's been kind of similar uh, throughout this uh, last year. I think when you want to talk about America or Canada's role in you know, escalating the situation in Ukraine, um, and you know any any idea of talking about diplomacy or trying to push for an end a ceasefire or an end of the conflict gets you know framed as being some kind of like Kremlin propaganda or, or whatever. I guess that's kind of my main difference. I, like I hope this isn't too spicy. Um, I guess that that to me that's the big difference between these two conflicts. Uh, you know I'm against the invasion of Ukraine and I think it's it's absolutely horrific the toll that it's taken on in people in Ukraine and in Russia. Um, I guess the difference for me is that when you talk about, you know, the things like the expansion of NATO uh, up to Russia's borders, when you talk about, you know, in the United States and Canada pumping arms into Ukraine over the last 10 years and kind of fueling this uh, civil war that's been going on in these eastern regions, you know, you can say that that doesn't justify an inv- a horrific invasion that we've seen, but these are at least like real things that have happened. Like we do have like reporting that we, we have been implicated in this situation. Whereas when you're talking about manufacturing and the consent for the run up to Iraq, 
and the whole threat that Iraq posed to the United States, that was like pretty much totally fictional. Iraq's WMD program, um, all the stuff about anthrax and the, the, all the different weapons programs that they were developing and the idea that Iraq posed a threat to the United States. I think that's total fiction. Um, whereas the things that Putin said, you can think that he's cynically weapon wielding these things to justify this Which he is. invasion. Yeah, yeah, I would agree with that. But that to me is the big fundamental difference. And it's actually quite interesting the way that Putin is kind of inspired himself by that kind of uh, shock and awe kind of rhetoric and using this kind of altruistic language to justify these things. I think Putin himself really actually learned from the invasion of Iraq and the way that the U.S. talks about these conflicts and has used this exact strategy uh, in the run up to uh, in in the run up to the invasion of Ukraine. You know, it's it's funny that you mentioned that because, um, you know, if I were to, you know, go off camera for a second, I could grab uh, the memoir of Defense Secretary Bob Gates, uh, who was uh, Bush's final Defense Secretary and and um, and uh, and Obama's first, and uh, before Gates was Defense Secretary, he was Deputy CIA Director and a senior analyst. Um, focused on Russia in the the late Cold War period. And he publishes a memoir around like 2013, I think, something like that, um, about his time as defense secretary uh, during the war on terror. And throughout it, you know, at this point, it has no political salience. Um, Russia hasn't um, launched the 2014 um, invasion of Crimea yet um, in eastern Ukraine. Um, I should... Uh, you know, invasion meeting, you know, the little green men, not, not like what, what happened starting in 2022. And again, but, you know, functionally the same thing. Right. Um, And before there is political salience to it, before there's like spiciness um, added in retrospect, before the idea that you would be a a Putin apologist for talking about this, you know, Gates vents a lot of adjective by saying, you know, we, we basically kicked the post-Soviet Russia in the teeth that um, in 2008, uh, Bush, and this is while Gates' defense secretary, um, flirts with the idea that Georgia and Ukraine, which were Soviet republics, um, very long in the Russian sphere of influence, um, like could join NATO. And Gates like has to say, like, I wasn't really in a position to speak out. And you should have been, man. You were defense secretary. Um, if this is yeah. what you believe, you might have like influence over it. Like I can't get <laughs> yeah. into a room with George W. Bush and you can't, but he's talking about how like, this is really a mistake. This is inevitably provocative, not only to Putin, but to, you know, all of Russian, um, you know, decision-making elites that the idea of, um, you know, a military alliance whose raison d'etre is, you know, started out at, you know, stopping the expansion of Russian then Soviet power that didn't, you know, disappear after the end of Soviet power, but kept expanding closer to Russia's borders, um, all during a period of supreme American global power. Um, that is going to have, and like Gates is just talking about this outright, like that's going to have a provocative effect. Um, Bill Burns, who was um, a long time, a longtime State Department diplomat um, for the Middle East um, and is now CIA director, um, interestingly, writes quite possibly the most prescient memo in 2002 
for Colin Powell about why the United about it doesn't quite come out and say, like, we should not invade Iraq. But in bureaucraties, it's very much like you should definitely not do this because it's going to be a you know multifaceted and compounding disaster. And a tremendous amount of that memo written in 2002 came to pass. Um, Burns similarly would write about how like this is a very provocative thing. Um, expanding NATO, and it's happening with no debate, and it's happening with an expectation that the United States will remain so supremely powerful that Russia dare not, you know, change the terms of what um, its current, um, you know, foreign policy, you know, based on its, you know, what it considers its sphere of influence to be. And like, that's really a very dangerous thing. And the invasion of Iraq really shows why. Um, in 2000, I believe it's it's eight, it might be 2007, I forget, but um, in kind of his like, you know, de- the new Putin, quote unquote, debut speech, that there really wasn't a new Putin or anything like that. But um, before, you know, in 2002 and 2003, Putin, who's in no position because Russia is very weak um, to be like mounting like vociferous challenges to a U.S. led international order who's also still trying to get along with George W. Bush, like makes it clear that at the United Nations, they absolutely oppose an invasion of Iraq and like does so, um, you know, making like, you know, note of how alarming it is to hear the United States say that is, you know, aggregating for itself a right outside of international law um, to invade and occupy uh, countries without like an actual act of aggression committed against against itself, and by um, 2007 or eight, I forget which year. I think it's 2008. Putin gives a speech at the Munich Security Conference. Gates is there, um, in which he says, in so many words, "Look at what your international order has accomplished. Look at the, you know." multiple disasters that this way of um, American, uh, you know, foreign policy um, has generated. Um, and I told you not to do this. Chirac in France told you not to do this. Schroeder in Germany um, told you not to do this. Schroeder, who will, you know, later go on and basically like, you know, become financially dependent on Putin in a corrupt way. Um, and Putin says, like, I'm just not going to stand for this. Like, I'm not going to play by these rules if these are these rules. Now, Putin's apologists at the time make a, a, you know, a a giant, you know, I don't, let's be, Putin's apologists basically hear what they want to hear there and pretend that um, Putin is posing an alternative um, to this mode of behavior. When in fact, what Putin is actually saying is, I want that for me. What what you do, I want for myself, and I intend to have it, as he does um, in Georgia and then Ukraine. And, um, yeah. So this is not ancient history. Um, I don't think that the extreme – I wrote about this in my column in The Nation. Um, I don't think that that requires the United States to hang its head in hypocrisy and stop supporting the brave people of Ukraine who never asked for any of this shit. Um, what it does is obligate the United States to change its resting mode of behavior, whereby it says it 
maintains by virtue of might and hegemony, the right to police the world. And now in an era where American hegemony is under serious challenge, um, less so by Russia than by China, in a moment where all of humanity is facing an exceptionally near threat to our continued existence on the planet, there has never been a more urgent time to rethink American foreign policy and the international mechanisms that go along with the current order from like a root and branch way, because what we've been doing hasn't worked. What currently exists doesn't work. And the continued uh, persistence of all of this failure and freight is going to lead to a combustible situation that will have us facing multiple cold wars simultaneously while the oceans rise, while droughts simultaneously increase, while, you know, safe water access uh, becomes um, a ever more scarce resource and human migration patterns accelerate and change tremendously. This is the world that's coming and the world that was built in an important way, shaped significantly and persists after the Iraq war. I don't mean to say only the Iraq war, but since we're talking about the Iraq war, can't deal with it. Yeah. That was an old fashioned rant. No, that's great. That's great. <laughs> that's great. Um, I just wanted to talk about, you know, the sort of psychological effect of, cause you, you talked about the way that like, as a reporter and you're looking to these people that you're supposed to be sort of like having some level of trust for, for, or you're, they're supposed to be like the arbiters of what is true and how that has this warping effect when you see these people just blatantly lie. I think it's really interesting how a lot of people kind of from our generation that lived through that and watched that happen, the effect that that's had as we saw that just rampant criminality. We, we all witnessed this like a, a gruesome, like historic, violent crime uh, take place just under these under these completely fraudulent pretenses. Um, and even, you know, a, a lot of people just as dumb college students as I was predictably were against the war and knew that it was going to be a disaster. And all these very powerful people seemed intent to go along with it. Um, and, you know, as the evidence came out eventually that the all the this the um, the intelligence they were using was all based on this kind of fraud and there never were these weapons that they were looking for. And they were they were insisting to Americans and people around the world that existed and I think just the process of watching all the people that were directly involved in this like horrendous crime walk away from that with zero repercussions whatsoever, and not only not having repercussions, but then slowly being rehabilitated. Like you see, you know, George W. Bush and Ellen hanging out at the football game. And then Ellen talks about like, well, I see, you know, I like to be friends with people that I disagree with politically. But it's like, no, it's not about people that disagree politically. These are actual like criminals. Like they engage in a horrible, horrible crime for which, as you pointed out, upwards of a million people were killed not to you know to say nothing of the civil wars that took place and isis and 32 million refugees were created as part of this process the war in iraq and the war on terror and you know i think that that does something psychologically when you when you witness these very powerful people that have these like immensely powerful positions in your society engage with the world like that just engage in this kind of rampant criminality 
and are not only not punished for it, but walk away from it and are rewarded by it. I think seeing Iraq and so shortly after seeing the financial crisis and seeing a different set of people commit this massive fraudulent crime and also get rewarded for it. Um, you know, people wonder why people there's, there's this old adage, you know, of people, oh, you're a, you're a socialist when you're young, but then when you get older, you can become conservative. But for a lot of people in our generation, it's been the exact opposite. Yeah, the exact opposite. Yeah, yeah, it's been very interesting. I think to to talk to people from this generation and and study sort of the impact that that had of witnessing these great egregious crimes uh, take place, and the people that perpetrated these crimes just completely skate away from it and get rewarded from it, while everyone else, you know, suffers for the the consequences of their actions. So I was on a panel in Washington a couple weeks ago, um, and there's a former intelligence analyst on the panel. Um, and as well, uh, the um, esteemed uh, Stanford University scholar, Francis Fukuyama, the end of history guy. Yeah. Um, and one of the things that that they were talking about is how, you know, you, you, you still have the intelligence agencies in the United States operate under this cloud of suspicion that they would refer to as the, you know, not just them, but they would refer to as uh, the hangover of Iraq. Um, and it became difficult, they were lamenting, uh, for people to accept uh, intelligence agency forecasts that Russia was going to invade Ukraine at the beginning of, of 2022. Um, and they would shake their heads and say, well, you know, we were vindicated by that. Um, and that should really show that the um, the post-Iraq attitude um, toward um, U.S. intelligence uh, has to end. Now, I would disagree that there really is something that can be categorized as a as a post-Iraq attitude toward U.S. intelligence when we see um, the tremendous amount of deference that before, during, and after um, the the Iraq invasion, U.S. intelligence you know, received, um, you know, if not outright deference um, from, you know, the media um, in particular. Um, but it just became so apparent to me in that moment that, you know, they want credit for doing their jobs right the time that they got it right. Like, you know, it just trust doesn't work that way. Okay. I would not be able to credibly talk to um and, you know, in, in U.S. intelligence, an analyst who works on, say, Iran issues and point to a moment when, you know, the Iranians, and this happened after, you know, after 9-11, where the Iranians offered to cooperate uh, with uh, the U.S. invasion of Afghanistan um, and be credibly, you know, taken seriously when saying, like, perhaps this is you know, uh, a deviation in recent Iranian behavior that the United States ought to cultivate, um, that would be perceived as, as, as it was, uh, dangerously naive. Um, instead, what you get is, you know, I think really, you know, the subtext telling the whole story, which is that uh, in uh, a really real way, U.S. intelligence recognizes that it deserves the cloud it operates under to the degree it even does operate under a cloud and is now kind of demanding that the public no longer extend that, you know, suspicion of it, that doubt, um, which I think in practice cashes out 
um, just to general skepticism and not even hostility. Um, hostility, perhaps in some cases, but at the same time, you know, you can't make a million people come back to life. You can't say that this was, you know, a trivial, you know, deviation um, from, you know, the storied history of success that is U.S. intelligence. Um, my friend Tim Weider wrote an excellent history of the CIA called, appropriately, Legacy of Ashes. Um, this isn't a deviation at all. Um, and to want to get out from uh, that supposed cloud without reckoning with it, because what, you know, they say, you know, they did and, you know, you know, they do is the, the way that uh, they submit new uh, intelligence analytic product now contains like explicit grades on how much certainty they assess, you know, uh, each, you know, assertion uh, to possess. Like that's an internal certainty bureaucratic level change. Exactly. Uh, <laughs> certainty level yellow. Certain, you know what I'm saying? Um, <laughs> you know, these sorts of internal bureaucratic changes um, may not come across as compelling uh, to people on the outside of the holes of power um, who are simply expected to go along with, you know, what we what they say with the caveats all shaved off. And, um, you know, U.S. intelligence during this period doesn't just do uh, the invasion of Iraq. Uh, they are torturing people in black sites and coming up with... Uh, euphemisms like enhanced interrogation for why their torture shouldn't really count as torture. Uh, they are assassinating people uh, through drone strikes, often people that they don't positively identify on a targeting list, but instead uh, assess to fit a pattern of uh, terrorist or insurgent behavior and calling that not assassination, but targeted killing and down the line. This speaks to an enormous and persistent credibility problem within U.S. intelligence that requires the risk of what Madeleine Albright endured, like an, an actual public moment of, you know, accountability from U.S. intelligence outside, you know, intelligence leaders outside the very narrow bands of, you know, audience, uh, you know, screening that typically happens when, um, the director of national intelligence or the CIA director, you know, speaks at a, at a think tank with people who are already um, inclined to, um, you know, uh, be, you know, polite and defer and so forth instead of actually challenging. Um, and without that, as I don't expect that, you know, to in fact occur, you know, you're going to get this, you know, attitude of condescending hostility to people who remember uh, these uh, horrific acts by U.S. intelligence that they need to get with the program and stop living in the past. Like you were, you know, a you know, that, you know, your partner cheated on you and then gets angry with you for not trusting them in the future and keep bringing up old stuff. But when trust is broken, there have to be affirmative measures, often material measures, um, to demonstrate not only uh, the depth of, you know, real amends uh, that someone is willing to take to demonstrate that they get what they did was was wrong and a violation, 
but also a material way of showing why it won't happen again. Without any of this happening, whether it's intelligence, whether it's in media, whether it's in politics, we should expect it to happen again. Because as you guys say, no one paid any price for this. That is to say, in elite circles, human yeah. beings paid oh, horrific totally. prices Yeah, an immense price. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, well, Spencer, thank you so much uh, for joining us. Uh, where can people follow you, um, find more of your work, uh, and subscribe to, subscribe to your newsletter over on Ghost? Thank you. Um, uh, I really appreciate you guys having me on to talk about this and indulging my rants. Um, I am on Twitter and Instagram at Attackerman. Um, I have a newsletter on Ghost called Forever Wars. That's foreverwars.ghost.io for some reason. Um, I am also a columnist for The Nation magazine. And um, I will uh, soon be publishing, um, starting uh, March 28th, uh, a four-issue comic book miniseries for DC Comics. Um, about a lot of the issues that we are talking about, just set in a superhero universe um, called Waller versus Wildstorm. You can Wait, get that's, that. At, at, uh, that's fantastic. Yeah. Thank you. Talk yeah, more I'm about really that. That's about sick. Okay. I didn't know that. Um, yeah. How did so, that come about? Uh, me, me and my good yeah. friend, um, Evan Narciss, who's a fantastic comic book and video game writer, um, are writing this. Um, there is a, uh, a DC character. I'm a giant comic book nerd. Um, there's a, a character in the DC universe uh, called Amanda Waller. Uh, she runs the Suicide Squad. Uh, she's played by Viola Davis in the movies. She's basically director of national intelligence um, in the DC universe. And uh, this story, uh, which also involves um, a sort of other superhero universe under the DC Comics banner, uh, called Wildstorm, which is a favorite of mine um, from the 1990s. Um, that is uh, a superhero universe that is filled with untrustworthy spy services, untrustworthy corporations, untrustworthy politicians, and whatever superheroics happens isn't so much like good guy versus bad guy, but different sides of a bureaucratic or geopolitical fight. Um, and so we're mashing up... Uh, those two aspects of the DC universe to tell a story of Amanda Waller's rise to power. Um, and it's set within uh, essentially a battle for power inside uh, the DC universe spy agency and simultaneously a battle for control um, over a foreign country. Uh, that's a familiar battlefield in the Wildstorm universe. That's very cool. It might be uh, the only. This is a bit of a. This is this is a bit of a spoiler, but uh, it might be okay. the first issue of this, which is out on March twenty eighth, might be the only comic I can think of that references uh, the Shock Doctrine by Naomi Klein and the Jakarta Method by Vincent Bettens. <laughs> Hell yeah! <laughs> oh, that's great, man. Yeah, thank you. I'm super stoked about that. That's so cool. Um. Awesome. Thank you so much for joining us, Spencer. Yeah, thanks, thanks Spencer. so much, you guys. Hey, everyone. Thank you for listening to The Insurgents. If you want to subscribe to the show, you can find us on iTunes or Spotify or at Substack, theinsurgents.substack.com. You'll get the latest episodes delivered straight to your inbox as well as our newsletter. On Twitter, we are at InsurgentsPod. Tweet at us, harass Ken in our replies, and then send us your hate mail to theinsurgentspod at gmail.com. Thank you once again for listening. <laughs>